everything and then some. So this morning is Sunday. It is March 7th. Our message is called Everything and Then Some. I do want to tell you before we get into the message, there is a quote on the wall at my office. Uh, and if you want to call it secular employment, to me it's not secular. I talk about Jesus all day long there. It says, most problems are man-made. And most of the time, you are the man that made them. <laughs> we have a, a problem. We dedicate our babies like we did this morning during worship. Occasionally we go to church. Sometimes we even go to church regularly. But our lives are usually one continuous transferal of the blame and passing of the buck. We entrust our education of our children to other people. We entrust their education even to Sunday school teachers. When things don't go well in our lives, we blame our pastors. Sometimes we even blame God. I want to tell you that your life is a sum total of your choices. If it were not for God's mercy, you wouldn't be here. Did you hear that long pause? During that pause, did you take a breath? That was a gift from God. It was a gift from God that you are alive and you're here today. And let's go ahead and claim victory where we can find it. <laughs> Praise God. If the devil had his way... The Word says He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You wouldn't be here right now if He had His way. So the fact that you are here is evidence of His blessing in your life. Amen. Most of you have eaten recently. That's evidence of His blessing in your life. Most of you had roofs to sleep under last night. Again, evidence of His blessing. God does not need to prove Himself to you. But He is watching your life, giving you a chance to prove faithful over the blessings He's already given you. We need to be very careful to not stand in the habit of saying, Give me more, Lord. Give me more, Lord. Give me more, Lord. When we have not done anything with what He has already given us. So let us take this pledge together. When we dedicate our children, when we show up in church, when we go to Sunday school, no longer will it be so that someone else can do something. But it will be from this point forward so that we can take charge and do something ourselves. I'm not teaching a salvation by works. In fact, this has nothing to do with our topic today. We're going to get into our topic, which has more to do with discipleship. But I want you to know, as much as salvation is not by works, when you get saved, you want to do the works of God. You want to go destroy the devil's work. You want to see people set free. You find yourself talking to strangers in parking lots that everybody else would pass by. You go out to get a loaf of bread at Walmart... And you don't make it back for a few hours because you saw somebody that you thought Jesus wanted to get in touch with. I stood at a wedding yesterday and I realized that when I looked out into the crowd, many were believers, but most were not. And probably everyone there called themselves a Christian. And as I told them, many of you are believers and still even more, many are not. You can feel the gasp, the uncomfortableness, like I can't believe he said that. How could he know what's in my heart? Well, I want to tell you. I didn't have any problem discerning what was in the groom's heart. He was in love with his wife. And it was written all over his face. I didn't have any problem discerning what was in the bride's heart. She was in love with the groom and her life was dripping with it. Their little knees were knocking together while they were standing there. We ought to have no problem discerning our love for Jesus because it is supposed to surpass that of our love for our family members. So don't tell me it's a private matter. Don't tell me it's an intensely personal thing and none of my business. Jesus died in a very public way. Yes. 
not in a corner. It was a bloody, gruesome crucifixion. And our churches have done us a disservice, me included. We wear neat, pretty little crosses. We have nice, beautiful stained glass. And we forget that the only way to enter into God's presence is through the perforated body of His Son. I'm telling you, to the early church, seeing a cross would be like looking at an electric chair. And we wear them as jewelry. In the 80s, the rock stars I used to listen to hung one of them from a one ear. Right? We've reduced the things of God to just feel good. And our churches preach just feel good. I want to tell you that the Word of God is something that will carve away excess from your heart. The Word of God is something that will pierce you deeply and make you consider that you are not walking as you should. And when you begin to feel this, the Word of God and the Spirit of God put you into a position where you have to choose. Do I become obedient to what God has just shown me? Or do I continue in my disobedience? I want you to hear me very clearly because I may never get a chance to tell you this again. The disobedient will not inherit the kingdom. Period. It is only those who are striving for obedience, who with all of their heart are yearning for their God that will make it. And here's another secret. The Word of God in the 24th chapter of Matthew says, the love of most people. I want you to think about this room for a minute. Look around. This morning a bunch of us are sick. There's probably about 60 of us in here. The love of most people will grow cold. Jesus said that the way into eternal life was narrow and only a few find it. He one time said it is so hard for a rich man to be saved, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And we ignore all of these things. They're always talking about someone else. I want you to understand they are speaking about you. They are speaking about me. Every parable given in the book of Matthew was given in a quote-unquote Christian context. There was no such thing as the word Christian then, but that's beside the point. The people saw themselves as believers. I'm going to tell you a little bit about their culture today and what it means to be a disciple. The reason that I'm going to tell you about their culture first is because as time has gone on, words have changed meanings. For instance, in the part of the country that I have come from, to say priest was a compliment. To say pope was a much greater compliment. Now in some of the Protestant circles that I have run in, both of those things were one of the foulest things you could call someone. So it depended upon the audience that you were in. In first century Judaism, to call somebody a Pharisee was a compliment. They were pious men. They were men who studied the Word, who believed that the way that they served God was to study the Word. Today, when we say Pharisee, what do you think of? You can say it out loud. Hypocrite. That's what you think of. So some of the meanings of our words have changed through context, through lots of preaching, through 2,000 years of history. And when we say disciple today, it means something in your consciousness that is different than what it meant in that day. Believe me, when I tell you Jesus gave requirements to be a disciple, and most of us have difficulty measuring up to them. I want to start with Matthew 1.1. How easy would that be to find? This would be the first chapter of the first verse of the first book in the New Testament. I want to do this to show you something that ought to be blatantly obvious. Let my kids tell me, thank you, Captain Obvious, for the adventure into the blatantly well-known. 
I, I, I will not wow you with this. It's probably something that you've taken for granted, though. In the first chapter, first verse of Matthew, it says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of a Norwegian. Oh, so, some of you are following along. Thank you. The son of a Vietnamese man. Jesus from Timbuktu. No. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Uh, would, would you believe me? I mean, I rarely lie when I preach. Do we have to turn to Luke one twenty six and show you that the angel showed up to a town in Israel called Galilee and spoke to Mary who was a daughter of David? Will you just believe me or do we need to turn there and read it? You can talk to me. I get my feelings hurt easy. I will cry and run out. And then what will you do for the next hour? When the Gospels begin the story of Jesus, they begin somewhere. This man descended from the kings of Israel. They begin somewhere. We're going to tell you a story. Of the, some say the greatest story that ever was told. But it begins in a town in Israel. This is important because the culture of those towns, the language of those towns, the customs of those people are part of the story. Would it make a difference to you in one regard if Jesus was Australian? Well, I'm pretty sure you'd be happy to be saved no matter how that works. But would it change some of the shadows and types, some of the great uh, pictures in the Word? Of course. Of course it would. You'd have to paint kangaroos into the gospel picture somewhere have to wonder what the Hebrews call the platypus. God chose a particular time and place to reveal His Son. A quote from a friend, not a friend, don't know him, somebody who I love like a friend. I've studied his word to the point, his writings to the point, that I think of him like I think of you. His name's Rob Bell. Here's his quote. Before all of the big language and all the grand claims, the story of Jesus was about a Jewish man living in a Jewish region among Jewish people, calling people back to the way of the Jewish God. I think that this is accurate, and yet somewhere it's been lost through history. So when somebody says, are you a disciple of Jesus, which we don't say anymore, what do we say? Are you a believer, right? It's like we're always lessening of the requirement. Are you a believer? Well, by believer you mean radically sold out, uncompromising, willing to give my life and die daily for Him? Yes. But if you mean, do I simply believe that Jesus is who He says He is? The demons in hell believe that, the book of James says, and they shudder at the mention of His name. So is it simply enough to be a believer? No, all the demons in hell would be saved. Why are we always watering it down to the point that you feel uncomfortable saying that one's not saved? Oh, how could you say that? What do you mean, how can I say that? He's pulling the toenails off of his children. But you could never know a man's heart. That's as stupid as saying you can't identify a watermelon from an orange. You know what something is by what grows out of its life. That's right. The problem with the American church is that we walk like a duck, we talk like a duck, we quack like a duck, and we claim to be a lion. The sooner we get real and take a sober estimate of our lives. It's funny, when you talk like this, your relatives will tell you you're being brainwashed. The Word does say renew your mind. With the washing of the water of the Word. Rest assured, we haven't handled snakes in years. 
I can feel some of you getting the EBGBs. I have never handled a snake. I kill them if I get a chance. That's my handling. I like to run them over in the car. I'll back up over them. Go forward. A five iron works perfectly on a snake. Amen. <laughs> my neighbor, I moved into a house in Denham Springs, Louisiana. My neighbor came outside just in time to watch me kill about a six-foot king snake. And he says, those things eat mice and stuff. I said, that one won't. <laughs> he said, but they're, they're helpful for the environment. Uh, you, you really should have left that alive. I said, in my environment, right. there are no snakes. <laughs> it was the beginning of a somewhat rocky relationship. Turn with me to Joshua 1. I want to read you something. So you'll go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you will get to the book of Yahshua. Joshua. In the first chapter, look at this eighth verse. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. If you meditate on it day and night, is there some other part of a 24-hour period that we're missing? Don't let it depart from your mouth. By the way, when a Jew meditates, just so that you know, at least in ancient Hebrew, the same word, word is like a lion growls. It means not to uh, go into a lotus position and, um, no, no, that's, that's the Eastern religions. When a Jew meditated, what meditating meant was to speak God's word to yourself quietly and think about it as you say it. Okay? Said, so don't let this law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it at nighttime and during the day. Well, if you're meditating on it at nighttime and during the day, when are you not meditating on it? Is it pretty clear then that the Jewish concept of the word was that it was something that you were supposed to be immersed in daily, nightly? All of the time. Why do we think we can get away with coming in on a Wednesday and a Sunday and that's all we need? Well, because we're Americans and we're looking to do the minimum. And we generally feel pretty good about ourselves. And we're pretty confident in ourselves. Never mind the fact that our lives are manifesting hellish fruit. We've got to be better than everybody else because we're Americans. Those Christians in China that are suffering... Something must be wrong with them because God would never allow His people to suffer. But we, we Americans, we're good people. Saints, all you have to do is get outside this country for a little while, pray with some Christians outside this country, and you'll feel differently about that. I promise that. It'll make you examine your life. It'll make you wonder whether the great many blessings we have are actually blessings, or are they merely distractions? How many of you can confidently say, Oh, yeah, Joshua 1.8, not only did I know what it said, man, it's the practice of my life. Yeah, me neither. I want you to hear a Jewish sage. Now, I'm not telling you he's a great guy. I'm not saying that you can't find bad things that he said. Okay? I don't know of any. I just want to tell you a very Jewish perspective on the education of children. This guy's name is Moshe, which is Hebrew for Moses. Maimonides. Uh, he's, he's thought of affectionately in Hebrew circles, and they call him Rambam. I don't know why. It's a nickname. <laughs> I kind of like it. It's better than Bam Bam. You know, it's like mixing Rambo and Bam Bam. Right? Ram Bam. He said, every person in Israel is obligated to be engaged in Torah learning. Whether one is poor or wealthy, 
Whether one is whole in body or afflicted with suffering. Whether one is young or one is old and feeble. Even a poor person who is supported by charity and goes from door to door seeking benevolence. Even the man supporting his wife and children. Everyone is required to find a set time during the day and the night to study Torah. As it was said, you shall go over it again and again, day and night. And he's quoting Joshua 1.8. The perspective in Jesus' day that studied the Torah, there was nowhere a thought that this was a Wednesday and a Sunday. Or if you're a really good boy, twice on a Sunday. It was something that shaped your life, both in the morning and the evening. In other words, when you went to bed at night, you prayed that the things that you thought about in your dreams were pleasing to God. When you woke up during the day, you spoke God's Word over your life, you began to meditate on it, believing that it was what would direct your life in that day. Does this describe your Christian walk? And yet we're supposed to have come into a fullness that the Jews never found. Uh, I don't know how many of you are Bible scholars, but I can tell you Jesus did rebuke the Jewish leadership in His day. You'll find it in John, the fifth chapter, towards the end, He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that by them you find eternal life, and yet you refuse to come to me. Right? What a powerful scripture. Man, you can study the word day and night and still not come to Jesus? Yes, but what do you think happens when you don't even study the word that was meant to lead you to Jesus? Hmm? Well, I've received Jesus, that's all I need. Really? How much of him? He is the word. He is the Word. When you read about this, you are reading about His character, His body of work, His reputation. How much of Him is in you? How much of you is in Him? How much of your time do you give Him? How much of your thoughts do you give Him? How much of your private life is His? Do you treat Him like a prom date? Do you put on your best clothes and go and pick Him up for a church service? You say all the right things and then you drop them back off? Or do you treat him like a spouse? You married to him. Do you wake up next to him each day? Go to sleep next to him each night? Think about him during time periods where your mind is distracted with work. Do you find yourself longing for him? I got a lot of young men in the room today. Just so happens I have some experience being a young man. Some of you think it was a very long time ago. And I admit, I'm getting little gray hairs on my chin. If you on my chest, I keep covered up. But it hasn't been that long ago. When I fell in love with Miss Jennifer, I told all my friends about the color of her eyes. I often thought about even the shape of her body. It was something that captivated me. Before long, we weren't spending a few minutes on the phone. We're spending hours on the phone. In fact, my in-laws are here today, so I need to be careful not to betray Jennifer's trust. But I'm going to go ahead and do that. When we were 15, we got on the phone one time at 9 o'clock, and I could hear her father's footsteps on the parquet floor coming to wake her up the next morning for church, and we were still on the phone. She said, I have to go. My dad's coming. Relax, I was not there. We were on the phone. Here's the thing. When you're in love with someone, you want to spend every moment with them. Does that describe your walk with Jesus? Say, well, I'm a believer, really? Well, that, what does that mean? What does that mean? Do you believe him like you believe Al Gore about global warming? <laughs> Is he an inconvenient truth to you? What does it mean to say, I am a believer? Does it mean that 
that I believe Him to the point where I do what He says, does it mean to you that you live to be in His presence? I want to tell you, at a place in my life where I could quote more scripture than most of you, and I was still lost, I came across a word that said, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I could say, Lord, Lord, with the best of you. I could quote the Roman road to salvation and all the other little Baptist tricks I had been taught. But I was not doing the will of God, and I knew it. And His Spirit came in a piercing way into my heart. And He began to say, Choose this day who you'll serve. And my thoughts began to relate to all that I would lose if I served Him. Turn with me to Joshua 6. See, we're going to work from left to right in the Bible. How about that? There's only 66 books in there. won't take that long. <laughs> hey, I'm even going to feed you after this service. What more could you want? <coughs> Those of you that know what I'm talking about, we're trying to feed you right now. Amen. The fourth verse of the sixth chapter. Huh? Not Joshua. Sorry. Deuteronomy 6. I told you I rarely lie when I preach. I didn't say it never happens. Deuteronomy 6. Starting in the fourth verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Ya Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Ehad. This is Hebrew. It's the cry of the Jewish people. It is the anthem. There is but one God, and we are to be one with Him. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. How do you get a commandment upon your heart? Come on now, tell the truth. Is your household like mine? I, my mother must have told me a billion times, you know, pick up your clothes, right? Was that upon my heart? Obviously not, because I never did it unless there was penalty, right? And even then, I weighed the penalty against whether or not I wanted to do it. I mean, she wasn't that big. I knew she couldn't hit me that hard, right? You can borrow my car, but when you bring it back, be full of gas. Was that commandment upon my heart? I one time siphoned gas out of my dad's car into my... Don't do that, teenagers. You get a mouth full of gas. I want you to know something. To get his commands upon your heart requires you to begin to live in a way that is conscious of Him. This means you cannot do whatever you want to do and expect God to bless it and call it God's blessing. Amen. You, you can't. At some point, what makes Him Lord and you His follower is when you do what He says to do. You say, oh man, but all of that Christian stuff pulls a vacuum, you know? It's just no fun. I want to submit to you that I got born again at 18. And I have lived a full life at 35 years old. I've had more fun than most of While people are claiming to have fun, steering the porcelain bus, throwing up their guts, killing their brain cells, I know what it is to have a completely clear conscience before God. To feel the God of the universe empowering me to do something. In fact, it's become my way of life. So don't talk to me about your fun. I know better. I have been there. I know what it is like to have to, because of insecurity, wear a facade.
It shows everybody how tough you are. To be ashamed of the things that you did. I hit a young man some, one time so hard that his braces came through his cheeks and his lips. Oh, I was a hero among my peers for a few minutes, but I had to go home and sleep at night. And you know what? Years after that happened, I still felt horrible. Don't talk to me about fun. I know better. I know better. You know what is fun? To be at peace, what the Hebrews call shalom. Knowing that you're in right standing with God and with man. To have a completely clear conscience. To feel free to do anything that God has enabled you to do. Anybody in here ever attempted to live on a budget? <laughs> now, I said attempted. I didn't say you mastered it, right? A budget can be the most restrictive thing on the planet. You go, oh man, I can't do what I want to do, right? Or a budget can be absolute freedom. I have this much money to do whatever I would like to do with in this category. The Word of God is not about restriction. It is about freedom. In fact, the people of Jesus' day and all of their learning turned the Word of God into restriction and He began to talk to them about freedom. Don't tell me it's not okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath. Even the Word says that you can get an ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath. You are free to do good things. In fact, the first words that God ever spoke to a man Anybody know what they are? Very first words recorded in all of the word that God himself spoke to a man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Very first words. The word of God is not about restricting your fun, restricting your freedom. Let me ask you, how much fun are you really having? It's wonderful to have those broken hearts after you've given yourself to someone, isn't it? And they've treated you like trash and thrown you away. Loaded down with guilt, loaded down with shame. Knowing in your heart that you're a believer, but not a follower of Jesus. What worse position could you be in to know that he is the ultimate, but not care enough to do anything about it? This kind of cowardice Christianity will not make it into the kingdom. And I want to be honest with you. I don't want to spend an eternity with people that didn't love him enough to serve him now. I don't want to. It's hard enough for us to endure each other's sinful behavior now when we love Him with all of our heart. Come on, have you never known somebody that you know loved the Lord and you still had a hard time getting along with them? What will it be like when they don't really love the Lord except that they simply say, Oh yeah, I believe God. Yeah, your dollar bills do too. They say it right on there. The same ones people snort cocaine through. Let's get real. At some point you have to have a reckoning with the God of the universe. At some point, He's going to put you in a valley and make you choose between a blessing or a curse. This is not because He's cruel. It's because He loved the world enough to interject Himself into it to save it. You are damned already, and if you get in Him, you get saved. You were not born saved, not born clean, not born in a good position, and then just got tainted. You come from the same disease stock I did. I come from an illustrious line of drug addicts and alcoholics. But at some point, I met Jesus, and it changed. It changed for me. Oh, I still look like the same old guy. But nothing about the meditations of my heart, nothing about my deeds, nothing about my actions are the same. It's been 17 years since I hit somebody in anger. It had never been a time of 17 months before that. 
few months before I married Jennifer, I was laying on Fred's couch with ice packs on my face. I tried to attack a man's fist with my face. <laughs> Listen to this. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Listen to all of that action. Listen to that. When you go in your house, when you come out of your house, when you go in the city, when you go out of the city, when you lie down, when you get up, impress them upon your children. I wish it was as easy to dedicate a baby as just say, or however it goes, I don't know, but it's a watch, glasses, yeah, my daddy beat your daddy in dominoes. I wish, I wish it was that easy. But the truth is, there is no magic incantation. It takes serious, hard work. And what is the hard work? From the time we are little, little in the Lord or little in life, we have to begin to feed ourselves something that works inside of us to produce an outward change. And you can not starve yourself of the Word, starve yourself of fellowship, and think that your life will go well. Oh, I know, to the world it looks cultish. Those people are always wanting to get together. Aren't you looking for parties to go to on Friday night? I just don't have to wait till Friday night. Aren't you looking to get filled with some spirits? I just don't have to get mine out of a bottle. Aren't you looking to get high? Come on, it's Friday. <laughs> now, how do y'all know what that is? How do y'all know what that is? Yeah, who doesn't like Chris Tucker, right? I don't have to wait for Friday, and I don't need a substance. Come on now. We all have the same basic needs. We all have the same basic wants. The Bible says that the world has been deceived, though. Been deceived. You ever argue with the drunk about whether he's fit to drive? You ever been that drunk? Right? I'm not drunk. Leave me alone. The problem about being drunk is you don't know you're drunk. Right? Unless, you know, you can't stand and feel your face is all numb and you're slobbering on yourself. I mean, I've heard that's how it works. <laughs> the problem with being deceived is you don't know you're deceived. You don't know. If you knew you were deceived, you wouldn't be deceived. So you're pretty sure everything's just going to be all right. Me and God, we got our own thing. He knows what's going on in here. <laughs> really? Do you? Do you? Because the Word says you know a tree by its fruit. You know a tree by its fruit. And you can claim to be an apple tree all day long, but if you're a tree producing raisins... Not even good grapes, dead ones, shriveled up ones. You're a liar. First John 1 John 1.6 says, If you say you have fellowship with the Father and yet walk in darkness, hear this, you are a liar and don't practice the truth. Yeah, when that one hit me, I wanted to cry. But instead, I masked that, that wanting to cry with rage. I actually got out of my seat and charged to the area <laughs> the man was speaking in. Thank God for a big fat youth pastor. He tackled me in the aisle. I thought, uh, you know, that guy, he's making me mad. I'm going to do something about it, right? Because I can fix all of my problems. Salvation is about finding out that you're in above your head. That if it's not for God's Word, God's Spirit, God's kingdom invading your life, you have no hope. It's about saying, Lord, I've messed it all up. I'll do anything that you want. You want me to stand on my head in the parking lot? I will do that. Whatever. You want me to wear those ugly hairstyles some people say i got to wear? I'll do it. Those ridiculous outfits that they wear, I will do it. Lord, you want me to walk around 
unhappy like all the people from that church, I will do it. Whatever it takes, I want to do what you want. And then you begin to find out that what he wants you to experience is the most abundant, full life possible. And the only people that have gotten this wrong are the deceived outside the church and the deceived inside the church. No. Oh, did you think that because you walked into a church and saw a person dressed a certain way that they knew about Jesus? All you need to do is meet him yourself and you'll find out how many don't. They don't. They repeat the same bumper sticker slogans that they've heard all their lives. Never encountered the king. When you encounter him, he is full of life, full of power. He is full of liberation. There is no bondage in him. There is no uh, restriction in him. The only things in the world that he does are protect you from things that would hurt you. That's right. There is nothing about him that is oppressive. Nothing. He came to liberate you from oppression. I won't wear the world shackles and I won't wear the churches either because I met Jesus. What I will do is be pressed into his likeness. Regarding this passage in Deuteronomy 6, Josephus said something. He's a historian at the time of Christ. Josephus remarked about the education that it wasn't seen as a luxury or even as an option. Education was key to survival. The Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you lost everything. He then added these words, Above all else, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. What did it mean to study the Word in Jesus' day? It was so central to life that if you did not study Torah, you had lost life. Now, come on, when somebody says they go to a Bible study, is that the concept that you get? Because that is the concept of Jesus' day. If you did not have the ability to study the Word, it would be as if your very life had been taken from you. That's a little different concept than the American church has, isn't it? Deuteronomy 11. You can turn there. You'll just turn to the right a few pages. How about that? This pastor jumps all over the place in the Word. Yeah, I've gotten familiar with it. <laughs> I love it. If you're used to a pastor giving you a single verse and then talking for an hour, what I like to call three points in a poem, or these days they've worked it down to 30 minutes so that we don't inconvenience the people, I'm sorry, you should not accept that. You should want to be taught more than that. And we can blame them all, all the days of our life and say, that pastor did this and that pastor did it. Why did you put up with it? Because well, we want to go to a holy place. See a holy man dressed in a holy suit and pay a holy fee. You go to hell that way. Come on now. You need to get into the presence of God That's and right. say, Lord, how am I with you? Amen. How are you with me? I'll do anything that you want me to do because my ways are not working out right. And until you're in that place, and there's no guarantee you'll get tomorrow. Not one guarantee. How many days have you already wasted? Until you're in that place, you need to know for certain. You have no hope of spending eternity with Him. I don't care what they've told you. The Word says, Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I'm not unrighteous. Really? Who is then? If you're not, who is? Well, my, uh, my, my friend, he's worse than me. Is that the way that it works? If you are not living for the will of God, if you are not striving for obedience in every area of your life, you are absolutely what the Bible calls unrighteous. Absolutely. Your right standing with God is demonstrated by your faith or trust in Him. Don't tell me you trust Him if you won't do what He says. 
I trust you, Lord. I, I, I believe you. And you told me to make a cake with these ingredients, but I'm not going to use them. But I trust you. Man, if you trust the cook, you follow the recipe. That's right. Now tell me you trust him. I trust him with my life, really. Because you don't seem to be trusting him daily with your life. This is what it means to be deceived. It means to be in church all the way to hell. Some of you might even be wiser than that. That's why I don't go to those places. I do watch it on TV sometimes. I was told this morning, somebody's telling me what they uh, had heard from a religious leader. Jesus was one of seven major prophets. Muhammad was one of the seven, that's it. If you believe Jesus was a prophet, you better do what he said to do. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. <laughs> it's funny, people that call him a prophet and don't do what he says, that's cultish. That's what's cultish. People that have taken his word and twisted it into anything other than what it most obviously says. I want to submit to you an idea. When you look at the word, if a seventh grader reading it, never, never heard anything before, if a seventh grader read a sentence, and your interpretation of that sentence is so dramatically different that the seventh grader could never get it, you probably need to back up. Because God did not mean for this to be complicated. He meant for it to be obeyed. Right. How many of you give your children instructions that they need somebody else to explain to them so that they can follow your instructions? Gabriel and I are pretty familiar with each other. I've never heard him tell Grayson something that required my explanation for Grayson to understand. Never. So why is it that we think that God's commands to you require someone else to explain them to you? We don't. It's called abdicating your responsibility. <laughs> it's giving up your personal right to hear from God. It's pushing it off upon someone else so that you don't have to do anything. You don't like your life? Get in Jesus enough to change it. Or you can just sit and sleep in church. In Deuteronomy 11, I want you to hear these action words. It's the 18th verse. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many. Fix, tie, bind, teach, talking, sitting, walking, lying down, getting up, writing them. This is painting a picture that your relationship with Jesus should be based upon doing His Word in every area of your life. And yet, somehow or another, we've been deceived into thinking as long as we give Him two hours a week and maybe tip Him occasionally, I'm okay with Him and He's okay with me. You would require more of an employee much less a servant. And we are God's servants. When you get to know Him in a personal way, He'll call you His friend. But you have to have His Spirit in you. You have to be of the same substance. You have to love Him and be loved by Him. Hmm. Psalm 78, I told you about a little bit during worship. You can go ahead and turn now. I'll read it. By the way, one of the while you're turning to Psalm 78, one of the great questions in Jesus' day is, you know, we know we've got to teach our children. There's no question. But we don't want to teach a nine-month-old 
the book of Leviticus, it probably won't mean much to them. So at what age should we begin teaching our children? You can find that whole discussion in a commentary, the Jewish Talmud, on the Torah. And the actual quote goes something like this. Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, we accept him as a pupil, and we stuff him like a man would stuff an ox. How many of you have been so serious about your children's future that you would say you are stuffing them with the word like a man would stuff an ox? Because when a child was dedicated to the Lord in Israel, that's how they did it. In fact, Jesus' peers, his contemporaries, so many of whom missed the grace of God, lived in situations where they were being stuffed with the word of God. And yet, many of them still missed it. The word says it's hard for, for the righteous to be saved. What will the outcome be of the ungodly? What do you think our lives will be like when we completely abandon the word of God? Then just tell me the minimum. What do I got to do to buy the fire insurance policy? Look, can I write a check to the latest cause? How long do I got to sit there? It's not going to be boring, is it? Look, I don't like this church. Can I go find any other? Well, yeah, there's 15 on this road. Pick your poison. You better find out what the God of the universe wants of you. You better find out in a very personal way because I want to tell you something. There will not be a denomination standing with you when you stand before Him. There will not be a relative to blame there. There will not be some limp-wristed pastor that lied to you your whole life standing there either. You will be standing alone before the King. And He will say, give me an accounting for your life because I deposited into you breath. I deposited into you a sound mind. I deposited into you this and this and this and this. What did you do for me? Well, I believed. Even the demons did that. What did you do for me? What did you do with what I gave you? Was your life about repairing the world? Or was it simply a selfish existence that gets minds? Psalm 78. Oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His, His power and the wonders He has done. Man, what an amazing thing. One generation is supposed to reach out to the next we're supposed to be passing these things down, one to another. I don't want to go through the whole Jewish educational system, but I do want to tell you in brief, there were three houses that Jews went to, kind of like you go to elementary school, junior high, and then high school, right? Uh, the first house is Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer, Bet in Hebrew is always Bet or Ben, is house. Sefer means book. So you start off in the house of the book. From six years old to ten years old, you would memorize five books of the Bible verbatim. Right? From six to ten. Now remember, a great many of these people still missed God's plan. Armed with all that, a great many still missed God's plan. But I'm sure we'll be okay. We're Americans. Bet Talmud was the house of learning. You went there from the age of ten to fourteen. You memorized the thirty-nine books of the Older Testament... Plus, oral traditions, 
plus something called the art of asking questions. I don't have time to teach you what that is, but the dropout rate was pretty high. <laughs> Most Jewish boys got through Bet Sefer. Most Jewish boys did not get through Bet Talmud. But a very select group went on to Bet Midrash. This was called the House of Study or Understanding. You're in it from the age of 14 to 30. This is that time when you have a mastery of the word, you have learned to ask questions that were important, that showed understanding, and now you look out there like you would choose a pastor. <laughs> kind of. And you would say, of all the rabbis, who's doing this thing right? I mean, who's got the best walk? How do they walk with God? Who has got the right interpretation? Who is handling this right? And you would apply to that rabbi. That rabbi would come, maybe, to talk with you. His determination would be, do you have what it takes to be like me? Are you worth investing in? Many times, the rabbi would look at the student and say, mm, sorry, you're going to need to find another rabbi. Can you imagine how that would feel? Young people, this is like not getting into your favorite college. But you have to understand, a rabbi almost never took on more than 12 students. And so he had a limited number of slots and he only had one life to live. If he was going to invest in 12 students, he wanted to make sure that they were going to make it. So most Jewish boys who went through this would get to the place and say, Oh, man, I want to be like uh, Gamaliel. <coughs> that was Paul's rabbi. But most were rejected because the rabbi didn't think they had what it took. So they had to go find somebody else, a second choice, a third choice, or maybe not at all, and they just went home to be craftsmen. When Jesus was about to endure the cross, and his disciples were confused, and they were scared, he said, remember, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. This was a very Jewish way of saying, Lance, I picked you because you have the ability to be just like me. I didn't pick you because you couldn't do it. I picked you because you can. Where were they when, uh, when they were picked? They were fishing. They were tradesmen, craftsmen. What does that tell you? Other rabbis had rejected them. But Yeshua accepted them. I'm not here to tell you that God is angry with you and that He's rejecting you. I'm here to tell you that you are here because He says you have the ability to be like Him. The question is, will you try that's the question. Do you love him enough to even try? Are you going to sit back a complete panty waste and just cross your arms and blame everybody else? See, there are no cowards that enter into the kingdom of God. Revelation says the unrighteous, the vile, those who practice magic arts, and the cowards will not enter the kingdom. Nobody ever stands up and says, Coward, that's me. Man, Tin Man, standing right here. But what do your actions say? What do your actions say when you confess a love for Him that you will not live publicly? Isn't that cowardice? When you say, I know you're right, but do not have the courage to do what He says, is that not cowardice? I want to submit to you that the idea of a disciple in Jesus' day was not simply a believer. 
A disciple in Jesus' day could be defined as one who is being instructed for the specific purpose of being exactly like his master. So I want to ask you something. Are you a disciple? Is your whole goal in life to be exactly like your master? Or do you want to be just enough like him to escape the fires of hell? I want to tell you, you may be surprised. You may be surprised. If you gave your whole life for something, would you accept someone else who only gave little bits of their lives as a token? How many of you want a spouse that only loves you a little bit? Turn with me to 1 John. We've got about six minutes and we're going to wrap this up. You know what, Yvette? I realize something. I don't work for these people. I work for Jesus. I've got as many minutes as I need. That is an amazing freeing thought. See, the gospel is about freedom, <laughs> not restrictions. Are y'all in 1 John? By the way, there's a tremendous trap. Pastors don't start off thinking, man, how can I water this down? How can I end up a first-class loser in the kingdom of God? <laughs> what they do, though, is they say, I want to affect as many people as possible. Man, I have a heart for you, Lord. I want to teach people. I want to see lives change. How can I get more people in here? Well, they don't seem to like to come when I preach too long, so let's shorten it. They don't seem to like to come when the building's not so pretty, so let's pretty it up. They don't seem to like to come unless, you know, I mean, we need some coffee for them. Then we need some donuts for them. Then we need, then we need, then we need. And pretty soon you're feeding them grapes and fanning them while they are going to hell. And the question becomes, are you a pastor then? When your desire was to reach as many people as you can, but you see the masses and none of them are changing, are you pastoring them? I would say no. So I've gotten content with the idea that God will never give me any more people in here than I can effectively disciple. And every time our chairs get full, I preach a little harder and an amazing thing happens. We get a few empty chairs. It, it, it saves me from having to buy more chairs. <laughs> and I'll get to pastor all of Houston like this, 75 people at a time. I don't know whether it will always work that way, but the thing is, at least I don't have some note hanging over my head that you can look at me and go, if you don't do what we want, we'll withhold our money. Tell us we're good people while we go to hell. And that's going on in church all around you. Maybe even as you drive up and down some roads. First John, I want you to see the second chapter. Here comes the fifth verse. But if anyone obeys the word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. It's funny, in Jesus' day, not far from His day, a man named Yosi ben Yozer used to say to his disciples, cover your feet with the dust from your rabbi. This meant follow your rabbi. When he steps, you step. When he stops, you stop. When he goes faster, you go faster and stay close enough to him that whatever his feet kick up in the dust of Israel, it covers you. When we think of what it is like to walk with Jesus, it is follow him so closely that whatever the air is being stirred up around him, it's getting on you. 
Is that what our walk is like? When we say we are disciples of Jesus, is that what it's like? Because that was what disciples did in Jesus' day. <laughs> On some level, you've got to see that this is funny. You know, you've you got uh, 13 men walking in what to us look like big bathrobes, right? And, you know, they're going, and Jesus goes, oh, look! And then, clunk, 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 you know, Peter's on the end, knocks them all down. He says, what is the kingdom like? Uh, you know, Jesus, warn us before you're going to stop next time. He says, no, buddy, it's your job to watch me. We act like it's God's job to watch us. I asked the Lord one time, I borrowed a man's motorcycle. I used to ride motorcycles a lot, and uh, <coughs> I had never ridden one at this time. <laughs> he was trading it in on a vehicle, and I told him I needed to appraise it. And I did. I needed to appraise me on it. <laughs> and it was fun. I was going past the governor's mansion in Louisiana, and it's got a really nice hairpin turn, you know. And I was opening it up. It was... Uh, well, anyway, somehow or another, mystical force knocked that bike on its side, and it, and it slid for some distance. And uh, slid right in front of a big cafe with people in it, you know. So, so they got to see, see this whole thing happen. And uh, I was 19. I mean, come on, I was stupid. Not a lot's changed. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I forgot to tell you that as I... Uh, had a few collisions with some vehicles. Uh, the handlebars of this man's motorcycle dug into the uh, side of a park state trooper's personal vehicle. So uh, it, it tore the car, uh, you know, about handle height uh, from the back of the rear bumper to the front of the front bumper. And as I came out of it, uh, overcorrecting, I laid it on the side and then slid for several hundred feet. And uh, wasn't a lot of metal left on the motorcycle. Anybody in here has ever ridden them, you understand. So I, I get up thankful that I am alive, but I'm bleeding puddles in my boots under my clothes, and uh, uh, somebody's yelling at me, you know, all kind of ugly things. And I'm sitting there thinking in my mind, Lord, why weren't you with me? Why, why did you let this happen? I kid you not. He spoke to me and said, you don't listen to me. So I sat there, took the verbal abuse from this person that I could envision myself using him like a pogo stick, standing on his ears and bouncing him all over the place because he was calling me all kind of foul things. And I thought, I am so sorry, Lord. I will listen to you now. Saints, some of you are beaten and some of you are bruised because you do not listen to the Lord. But just like me standing there in a situation I created for myself, you can choose right now to begin listening to the Lord. You can go on receiving new wounds, new difficulties, new deceptions, and blaming everybody else. There was actually a passage in the Mishnah during Jesus' day that said the ties between a teacher and his student take precedence over that of a father and son. For your father brought you into this world, and your teacher shows you how to enter into the world to come. Jesus taught like this. He said things like Matthew 10.37. Anybody that loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. That's a harsh word. How many people do you think sit in the church really love Jesus more than their mother, mother or father? How many? I suspect it's not the masses that we see eating donuts and getting gift certificates for Sunday school attendance. 
How do you really know? Well, you don't know till you're put into a position that requires you to do something that is unfavorable to even your mother and father. God will know His pride. And He will put you in the situations that reveal your heart to you and to Him. But what you find when that's done doesn't have to be the end of it. You can turn around. You can repent. You can pick a different road. You can do something different tomorrow than you've done today. Luke 14 is the second to last scripture I'm going to share with you. And I'm telling the truth this time. Because I'm getting hungry. I was very pleased to see as many of you showed up uh, when the service started. So many of us are sick. So many are out. So many have experienced difficulties, been in the hospital lately, those kind of things. There were not that many people here. And see, the thing about what I'm preaching is I already know it. That's why I'm preaching it. So it's, it's fundamentally not for me. I mean, the Lord begins to deal with me, but He's already dealt with me about it. And that's why I'm preaching it. I never preach to you things that He's not chastising me for. Never. I never pick something that I think is just a fun thing to preach. Most of you probably know that after you hear me preach for a while. I want to applaud you for fighting through whatever you had to fight through to get here today. Because I believe that the God of the universe has ordained your footsteps. Amen. Some of you probably went through unimaginable things. Some of you, the most difficulty that you've had is that you broke an eyelash. But whatever it is, <laughs> there is a devil who wants to keep you from getting this truth because he likes using you in whatever way he wants to use you. Come on now. And God has loved you enough tell you the truth. So here comes another word. This comes from Luke 14. It's 33, verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. If you want to be like Jesus, not just study the scripture, not just know of Jesus, if you want to be like him, and let's face it, you cannot be saved if you don't want to be like Him. You must give up everything. Now I know, all your commentaries, all your pillow puff prophets, your marshmallow pastors say, oh no, 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 you must only be willing to give up everything. I'm not that smart of a man. Me and Forrest Gump got a lot in common. <laughs> But even I can see that the word willing is not in that sentence. So what then does it mean? Well, every disciple that followed their rabbi left their way of life. They left everything they had to follow in the steps of their rabbi. What is keeping you from living and walking exactly like Jesus does? Whatever it is, even if it were your own eyeball, the word says you should get rid of it. And I can assure you, your eyeball is not the problem. It might be that you need to renew your mind to force your eyeballs to do what they should. <coughs> Philippians 2 is the last scripture that I'll share with you. So you'll go to the right. turn to Philippians 2, I thought I'd squeeze in another idea. Have you ever heard the Great Commission? 
which is to go forth into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what those next words are? Teaching them to obey. That's not preached anymore either. We simply say believe. He said go teach them to obey. He never said go teach them to believe. You ought to read the first chapter of Romans sometimes. He said, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Called to Jews and Gentiles. To call all peoples to the obedience that springs from faith. See, I told you this last scripture I turned to. I didn't say this last one I quote. You ready for Philippians 2? <laughs> if you didn't have a Bible tomorrow, how much of this is hidden in your heart? If we had a new president, a new congress, a new world order of some kind that came and confiscated these books, how much would you know of the character of Jesus? Stuff yourselves like an ox. We're way behind the curve. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Can you really give up more than that? To be God and make yourself nothing? If you want to have the same attitude as Christ, no matter what you've achieved, no matter what you have, no matter what a great man or woman you are, you need to make yourself nothing. And still, he went further. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Can you imagine the God of the universe wearing a diaper? That's a difficult thought. It, on one level, it's kind of humorous. And on the other level, you're like, oh, I shouldn't laugh at that. It's kind of serious. Right? He experienced puberty. He went through all of the things that we do. And he was God. He laid aside every right, every privilege, every power to experience life as you know it. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Not just a man, he humbled himself to other men. And he became obedient to death. He literally gave everything he had and then some. Here's the and then some. It's one thing to give your life. But to give your life on the most brutal torture machine that the world had ever known? He went as far as could be gone for you. He gave up everything and then some. And now he's asking that you arm yourself with that attitude. And that you go out into the world walking as he walked. Then you have the right to call yourself his disciple. I encourage you, church, stand to your feet. Let his dust get on you. Let his life rub off on you. Don't hear the word of God and not do what it says. The book of James says you will deceive yourself. I'm going to pray that God open our eyes. Then we are not going to have an altar call. There is not going to be some emotional moment where I beg you to come to an altar. What you have is a challenge before you. You know what the Word of God says. You'll either do it or you won't. There is no magic Jesus pill here. After you've attempted it for a little while, then come to the altar. And we'll pray for strength. But don't come to this altar and hope for the motivation to do something different than you've done. If what I've just read to you doesn't motivate change, you're probably damned already. But you don't have to stay that way. Mighty God,
Lord, we love you. At least most of us do. I'm asking that your hand would be heavy upon us. Your word says that you're not willing that any should perish. And Lord, you got through to my stony heart. You broke through all of my pride, my selfishness. Lord God, my indulgences. And you spoke to me in a way that I understood. I'm asking that you would speak to them, Lord, so that they might serve you. They have more to offer, Lord. They do a better job. But they have to hear you. They have to know who you are. Put in them a heart that seeks so that they may find. Lord God, teach them to worship you so that when your eyes range the earth, you will find them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, let's fold up our chairs. We'll throw them in the corner. We're going to bring out tables and food. I mean, how cool is that? If you can stay and eat with us, we would love that. If you can't, then we'll see you Wednesday or Monday or... We meet all the time.